This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Powered by Riverside. Everybody, what's happening? This is Uriah Young with Christopher Klein, and we are here for the Sixer Sense podcast. It's been a while. Lucas is not here with us tonight, but I'll just fill in for him. Chris, what's going on, man? Not a lot. I just started up my my last semester of school this past week, which is certainly an interesting feeling. But other than that, not too much. How have you been? Good, good. Are you going into class or are you remote? I'm going into class. That's what I thought. But then, mm-hmm. wouldn't you rather be at home in the cool AC because it's like a crazy heat wave going around the country? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously my classrooms have AC, which is nice. But I, I do have a tennis class that's outside that <laughs> can be a bit rough. But Tennis class? Look at you. Taking uh, tennis. I, yeah. I've waited a to the last second to do my one PE credit. So, so, but my point is like you're in Georgia mm-hmm. and I'm sure if it's 90 up here, I can only imagine the humidity and the heat down there. So I figure you just oh. want to stay in the whole time. Yeah. I mean, like I was up there all summer and it was pretty rough. So yeah, and I was in the mountains sure. where you'd think it would be cooler, but not really. So yeah. The Poc- yeah. Poconos, right? The Poconos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How's your tennis game? Is it better than your your hoops game? It is not better than my hoops game. I, I took <laughs> lessons in like middle school and maybe high school, so I, right. you know, I I can play a little bit, but I'm I'm not an expert. <laughs> okay. All right. One thing before we get into basketball, I have to say, and you're too young to relate to this, but I'm sure you've heard of Woodstock, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. So I was in the live for Woodstock '69. But I was alive for Woodstock 99. I didn't go. I just finished college. Netflix has this series out, three episodes that goes through each day of Woodstock 99. And it is astonishingly crazy. I don't know if you've seen any of it yet. Mm-mm, not yet. Um, but no, I, I, I have heard like the stories to some extent, but uh, I've never actually watched the shows. Uh and I, I probably need to get around to that. It is. I, you can appreciate the psychology of, of things and the business that you're like, what you're getting a degree in lends itself to the disaster that unfolded that could have been prevented had people in charge kind of had the foresight and the, the safety in mind. But anyway, if, if you haven't seen it yet, check it out. Let, let's get to some basketball now. All right, so we are obviously at the point of the offseason where not a lot is really happening with the Sixers, to be frank. So we're going to go elsewhere in the league for a little bit here. We're going to talk about Kevin Durant because that's kind of been the story of the summer so far in the NBA was Durant's trade request. And naturally it had maybe the most anticlimactic end possible, which is him basically saying, you know, okay, I'll stick around. We don't know exactly what this ceasefire means for both sides. There have been reports that it's a long-term thing. Some are speculating that it's not. But the Brooklyn Nets came out with a statement saying that Durant met with Steve Nash in ownership and said that they're going to continue their, their partnership with one collective goal of building a lasting franchise to bring a championship to Brooklyn. What went through your mind when you heard that news, Uriah? I know it's going to sound weird, but the first thing that came to mind was Stephen A. Smith. He and Durant had a little spat several years ago. He was like, mm-hmm. you don't want to make an enemy out of me. You remember when he did that? Yeah. I mean, it's pure entertainment, and those guys have mended it up. <clears throat> They've mended their relationship since. But I just see ownership sitting down with him and putting their foot down saying, look, this is what you signed. We're paying you. You have an entire city franchise fan base 
that bought season tickets just because of you. And this is the stance you're going to take. And he might have been posturing to try and push their card to, to trade them and, you know, taking shots at Sean Marks and, and uh, Steve Nash. But it was a big baby move of Durant. And I felt like ownership put their foot down. Some speculate, like you said, that it could be kind of like, all right, we'll, we'll you know, he'll play along now with the understanding that if anything pops up midseason, they'll actually trade him somewhere where he would, I guess, be happier, even though we know Kevin Durant can never be happy, but you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. But yeah, that's what came to my mind. I thought ownership got the best of the deal. If there is something kind of up their sleeve, then you know, good for them because the players are just, I think they're abusing their status right now. And, and it's ironic that KD has a, a teammate from Philly <laughs> who pretty much did the same thing. But what'd you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's kind of fascinating that, you know, that team and ownership and management has pretty much done everything in their power to appease Durant and Irving for the past few years. Like, they've pretty much built that organization around what Durant and Irving wanted. Um, and, you know, last season did not go very well for that team. There were issues in the locker room. There was a whole James Harden thing, etc. And I'm I'm not one to, like, criticize someone inherently for asking for a trade you know if you don't want to play in Brooklyn whatever that's fine you can ask for a trade but I do think management from their perspective deserves credit for putting their foot down and for not making any rash decisions from the articles and reports that have been put out it doesn't seem like teams were making very serious offers for Kevin Durant like if you're not going to put Desmond Bain on the table in a Durant trade like you don't really want Kevin Durant. Like you shouldn't take deals from teams that aren't seriously engaging with you. So yeah, good for Brooklyn, I guess. Obviously this is somewhat unfortunate for Philly just because the Nets could be very good. And that's another contender we have to, you know, watch out for as long as Durant's really going to play out the season there. But, Uriah, now now that KD is off the table. Actually, hold on. Hold on. I have something I want to carry over. So I know you don't want to hear this, (laughs) but you you know why Brooklyn had a hard time finding a trade deal for Durant, right? Can you imagine a team in the NBA that really, I don't know, demanded so many high draft picks for a very limited player? Great defensive player, but... You do realize that, right? Yeah, look, Durant's worth more than Rudy Gobert. Like, oh, but they set the precedent. They were like, "This is what's the this is what the market yeah. is right now." You give up four draft picks in like rotation players for a top twenty player. That I don't think, frankly, that they gave up that much, like relative to who Gobert is as a player. Like, I, I think we kind of overrate the value of draft picks sometimes. They're they're just draft picks. Well, There's really, nothing guaranteed there. The Boston Celtics <laughs> kind of they were they were the beneficiary of a similar deal when Danny Age was in charge with Boston, and they made a deal with Brooklyn, ironically, and they ended up getting Tatum and Brown with those picks. That at the time, people were like, oh, that Brooklyn, they didn't give up too much, but it kind of turned into two really good players. Yeah, I mean, look, there's downside and upside risk with every trade. If Gobert turns into late career Paul Pierce next season, then Minnesota's going to be in a bad spot, but he's in his 20s. Like, I, There's no reason to expect him to drop off in the near future. So, you know, every trade is different. But, I, I mean, like Durant is probably a top two or three player in the NBA. Like, you should be willing to sell the farm to get that guy in your team. I know there are like concerns about his personality, whatever concerns about injuries and age. That's all fair, but you get maybe the second best player in the world on your team. You have a chance to win the championship. Like uh, you, you gotta be willing to pay up for that. So my stance all summer has been that like teams should pretty much be willing to give up whatever it takes to get Durant within reason, of course, but 
you know, obviously Brooklyn wanted to keep him, and they're right to want to keep him because he's Kevin Durant, and that's Durant. now a team that can win the championship. Brooklyn yep. is totally has the chance to win it all this year. Like that's a team that has the pieces necessary to do that. They have the pieces. Durant is a different cat. This guy is tweeting back and forth with random people on Twitter. It's I don't know. He's I don't know. He's just a different guy. But what was the other thing that you want to say about KD? Well, I was just going to say now that he's off the table, I, I think it's pretty safe to assume, yeah, that Tobias and Tyrese are going to start the season in Philly. Do you think that's a safe assumption? Or do you see any other big potential trade candidates that the Sixers could look at? In my opinion, I think for now, Tobias Harris's days and Maxie's days are going to continue in Philadelphia. They're going to continue to build that chemistry with Joel Embiid because this will be their uh, third season playing together, which is important. Harden is is going to get a full season with the Sixers. Yeah, they have a lot of new pieces, but at the end of the day, you have you still have a good Tobias Harris, good solid player. Tyrese Maxey has a really high ceiling. Uh, Thibel is you know he was probably going to be included in that trade, assumably. He still has some contributions that he can make on the defensive end. So I think they'll I think they'll stay for now. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, but but you were saying earlier, KD staying in Brooklyn is is a concern because although they fell short in the playoffs recently, you never know if Ben comes back and decides to be a basketball player and and he finds his niche on that team, then they can be a formidable opponent. They could be a, a, a top three team in the East. Uh, I. And it's interest because on one hand, that's the case. Like Brooklyn is now one of the top four or five teams that you have to really watch out for in the East if you're Philly. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you look at the list of likely destinations, if he had gone to Boston with Tatum, that would have made the Celtics like pretty clear favorites and just made them even harder to beat. Mm -hmm. If he had gone to Toronto, you're kind of swapping one potential contender for another. Like the Raptors would just in that sense Miami you're elevating a team that's already kind of on Philly's level so they're like pros and cons because if he had gone to one of those three teams that would have made life more difficult for Philly too in different ways but Brooklyn's a real threat now I, I know a lot of Philly fans don't really want to see Ben Simmons in the finals but that's like a real possibility that we have to consider now because Carrie Irving and Kevin Durant are two of the best players on the face of the planet and there are a lot of issues with that franchise and how they've run things. And those players in particular maybe don't inspire like the greatest confidence in the locker room, but that team on paper could win it all. And they should be considered a pretty real threat in the East. Um, even with all the outside noise that kind of plagues that team. Save big on your Memorial day barbecue all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right, now that we've talked about Kevin Durant, let's get on to a blossoming star in Philly. And when I say blossoming, I mean uh, a guy who's got a smile as wide as the arena that he plays in. Very unique personality, great attitude. Who am I talking about? Come on, people. You know I'm talking Paul about Reed. Maxie. What? What? Paul oh, Reed. Sorry. Paul Reed does have a good smile. I'll he give does. him that. I'm just, he has right. a good smile. And he has a 76-inch vertical. <laughs> but Maxie. Yeah, yeah. But Maxie is, I don't know, he seems to have a, a crown on. Uh, a crown that, you know, people would say, uh, has he really earned it yet? Oh, I think so. He was at the Phillies game the other night. Uh, it was the game that uh, before, actually it was the game after the game where I got stuck in the rain. I was supposed to podcast with you guys the other night. Mm -hmm. But I want to play the the audio of him coming onto the scene, into the stands, uh, the play call booth. Uh, I think it's John Crook, and I can't remember the other guy, but 
Maxie's coming down the the stairs in the stadium, and he's going to sit with the announcers. And he gets a standing ovation. He's all smiles. And this was a, a nice little verbal exchange with him, showing his personality. A little bit of sarcasm, sense of humor, but you got to love it because it's Maxie. I'll play it. I've been to, uh, you know, the fly, I mean, the, the Eagles and also the Phillies game, of course. And, of course, I go to the San Francisco games every oh, really? so often. Every so often. Every so often. Yeah, good I, seats, really. You know, the seats aren't bad. You know, Joel and sometimes I have to sit in between Joel and James. <laughs> you heard that, right, Chris? Did you hear I that? I did, yeah. Look, the guy comes in. He's embraced the town. He said it with his own words that it, he connects with the city because he's had to work for everything that he's gotten through his young career. And that's what the city embodies. As far as the question that I want to hit you with, do you feel, and this is going to be tough, even for you, you're the big Gobert lover and, <laughs> and uh, Jokic lover. How possible is it? that Tyrese Maxey could overtake Embiid as Philly's favorite sixer? You know, I, I think that's a tough question to answer. I think it really just, it's a kind of something that gets decided on a person by person basis. You know, mm -hmm. each fan is going to have their own like criteria, subconscious or conscious and how they like determine who's their favorite or just how a person like, like for me, my Sixers fandom pretty much started with Joel. So I have a tough time seeing anyone overtake Joel unless there's like a really nasty ending to that partnership that no one wants to see or think about. So I can't imagine anyone surpassing Joel for me personally, but you know, if you're a young kid who's five years old and you're just starting to watch the team, Maybe it's different. Maybe Maxie is the guy who excites you the most because he's the fast one making all the cool moves on the perimeter. Maybe, who knows? So I, I think it really just depends on how Maxie's career develops, how Joel's career develops, and any other number of factors. Is it possible? Absolutely, because, I mean, he's just a, a really lovable guy. There aren't that many athletes in Philly who just feel as immune to criticism as Tyrese does right now. Like he's he's just kind of on everyone's good side, which is hard in any sports town, but it's especially oh, yeah. hard in Philly. Right. It's just really impressive what he's been able to do. And he has the work <laughs> ethic. He has that very like stereotypical Philly blue collar persona. You mentioned the smile. He's just a really likable person in general. And he's awesome on the court. Like he gets better. He works hard. And the results are there pretty consistently on the floor. So there's really not a lot to complain about. Um, what, what are your thoughts? It's all about expectations. He's a younger player. Embiid is now, I would consider him a seasoned veteran. Would you consider him a seasoned veteran at this point? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Well, it's all about expectations. So Embiid has been here longer, obviously, the crowd has embraced him. The city loves him. And he has the key to the city. There might be an argument that Bryce Harper is neck and neck with him. I can't see anybody on the Eagles right now. But Embiid is, is Philly's son right now. Maxie, look, I to answer the question, I don't think it's likely. I think it's highly unlikely. But if it did happen, if it did happen before Embiid gets hurt or, you know, God forbid, traded – the people who have been through the things with Embiid, the ups and downs with this team, have seen him grow into the man that he's become. Sometimes stuff gets a little stale for certain fans. And if, let's say, he has another streak of weird injuries, or let's say, like, there's a maybe there's like a little more immaturity about him. Maybe he doesn't grow out of that Troel Embiid or that Twitter. You know, guy that likes to roast his contemporaries or, or just random people, like hitting someone in the head with a basketball in South Philly. Like that, that was fun at the time, but I can't imagine Maxie doing anything like that. So Maxie's younger. Uh, like you said, he has different types of moves that he can make. He's faster, he's shorter, so I guess he's relatable. But I think it's highly unlikely. 
and that, that's the thing with Joel is he's like kind of been through the fire already. Like there was that point around like the Al Horford era where he wasn't always on everyone's good side in the fan base. Like there was some pretty real criticism of Joel, you know, deserving or not. I, I think a lot of it was undeserved, but mm-hmm. there have been moments where Joel's kind of been on people's bad side a little bit. And obviously he's come around on that. He is just like Tyrese worked extremely hard. He gets better every year. He continues to improve. Like the work ethic is a real thing with Joel, but Tyrese really hasn't had a point where the fan base has turned on him for any one reason or another. He hasn't given them a reason to, but you know, it's, this is only going to be his third year. If he doesn't improve, there are really high expectations for him. Like you said, if he kind of plateaus and just has another really solid 17 point per game season, but he doesn't, he's not an all-star or he doesn't make a really noticeable leap. Then maybe things start to waver a bit more. It's really all dependent on on what happens for him in that sense. So it, it's really tough to gain. Like the fan base's relationship to Allen Iverson, I wasn't there for that obviously, but there's a point mid two thousands where it soured a little bit. And obviously, mm-hmm. people have come back around in the grand scheme of things because he's one of the greatest players to ever play for the franchise. But these things kind of go through highs and lows with every player on every team. So there will be bumps in the road at some point for Tyrese. I assume he's not just going to perpetually get better forever and be the greatest player of all time. So at some point there will be a bump in the road and we'll have to see when and how that comes up. But like, like you said, Embiid has the key to the city right now. He's kind of a special like inflection point in franchise history is like when Embiid got on the court because he's kind of going to define this entire generation of Sixers basketball. So it's hard for me to personally to see Maxi surpassing Embiid, but it's different for every person. So the only thing that I could see it, it'll be, it would be really difficult for, for one to fall out of favor because of where they are right now and what they've shown us. And the one thing about Philly, like you were talking about Alan Iverson is he understood to wear his emotions on his sleeve, which Maxi and Embiid, are able to do in front of the fan base, but they're also like Allen Iverson willing to put everything on the court. They're willing to play through injury. They're willing to sacrifice to help the team win. And we see them getting better. And that's, and that's what this fan base loves to see, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, hockey, it is seeing growth and commitment to know that if someone's going to pay 90 bucks or 150 bucks to go to a professional sporting event that those guys on the court on the field care as much as the people in the stands. If Joel and Maxi both connect to that concept that really links them to this fan base and the mentality, they will be on equal playing ground. But like I said before, unless something freakish happens or he's traded, I, I think it'll, it'll be Embiid um, for, for the rest of their, I guess, coexisting career. But the last question related to Maxi Chris has to do with the potential of him becoming an all-star. Lucas has said it. I've said it that it is possible that he takes that leap this year, that he's an all-star weekend participating, maybe in the different challenges, but obviously becoming an all-star would be a, an amazing feat for him. That being said, if he did become an all-star this year and KD and Brooklyn, they fall out let's say around January, (laughs) would you still trade Maxi for Durant? Obviously there are like, yeah, there, it will depend on certain factors. Okay. Please. Does Durant still play like Durant? Yes. Let's say, yeah, he does still play like Durant. He becomes an all-star with Maxi with Maxi. Okay. Fair. If, If it, like depends on how good Maxi is. Does he like make the John Morant leap where he's mm. a top ten player that season, or is he like D'Angelo Russell making his one All Star appearance kind oh, of thing? So killing me. He's better than D'Lo. <laughs> I, but Absolutely. I mean, like it depends on what kind of All Star he is on. Obviously, right? Right. Like, right. Kevin Durant again is a top two three player in the NBA. If the Sixers have the chance to acquire him this season or next summer. Even with his age in comparison to Maxi, it, it's it's hard to say you shouldn't trade for Durant. 
just because he's you the goal is to win a championship with Joel and James. You have a limited window in which you're able to do that. And he's Kevin Durant. Like that Joel, Kevin Durant and James Harden would give you an extremely good chance to come out of the Eastern Conference. Like that would be the best trio the league has seen in a minute. So I would say it's still very likely that I would be of the opinion that you should trade Tyrese Maxey for Kevin Durant, but if Maxie is like suddenly doing John Morant things and he looks like one of the best guards in the NBA and he makes that kind of leap, which isn't totally out of the question considering his like arc of improvement up to this point, if that's the kind of leap he makes, then maybe you like consider not doing that. It, it just depends on what level he's at by so- January. <laughs> So there's Giannis Antetokounmpo all-star status. And then there's Chris Middleton all-star status. And if Maxi, even if Maxi makes it to Middleton all-star status, I'm keeping him. And in the minds of Brooklyn, in their minds, they're like, okay, Katie's still not happy. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll do a deal with the Sixers. We definitely want Maxi, but the Sixers will have a little more leverage in saying, well, you know, look at the leap Maxi made. He's made another leap. That means that your trade demands are going to have to go down a little bit. And the Sixers might not have to give up as much capital, whether it's a future draft pick or a current roster player. I, I would keep him. I don't know what Lucas would say. I always will say to you, I, hey, look, he is Kevin Durant. But if Maxi takes it to a, if he's going 23, 24 points a game, and his three-point percentage is still hovering above 40%, you cannot trade him. You just can't. You can't. He's too young and too good taking these leaps. And at that point, you just have to figure, well, what's keeping him back from scoring 30 points a game? And then there's going to be trade rumors of Harden or Embiid, and you know it's just another rumor mill going round and round. But me, if you ask me, I, I would not trade him. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I mean, the thing is, again, it's about, like, maximizing your title window and what you think is the best way to go about that. Like, odds are... You have a good point. You have a good point. As good as Kevin Durant is right now. Like, odds are he's just never going to reach that level because only a handful of players ever Mm -hmm. have reached the level that Durant's at right now. Like, he's that kind of special all-time talent. So... Maxi could be really amazing for 10 years and the Sixers never win anything because they don't have the pieces around him or Joel and James get older, etc. Like, like Durant, you might only have him for at his peak for another two years, three years, but you have a really good chance of winning a ring one of those years. You know what I mean? So Tyrese isn't like a bridge to the future beyond Joel and James. Like that's important, and you have to think about that. But it is, at the end of the day, maybe the greatest individual scorer of all time. Like Kevin Durant is an amazing player, so you have to take those things into consideration. Yeah, look, KD, when he went to Golden State, he went to a system that was ready for him to blend in immediately with scores like... Steph Curry and obviously Clay Thompson and having a facilitator like Draymond definitely helps. But I think the key there for him in that almost seamless adjustment was Steve Kerr, who (laughs) is a much better coach than Doc Rivers. So if he came here, that, that window, yes, is, is significant because Joel's not getting any younger, neither is Harden, but to get those three guys enough time to gel get on the same page it wouldn't be as it wouldn't be as easy as it was when he went to golden state that's all i'll say all right so we just finished talking about tyrese maxi now we're going to focus on the sixers core four as a whole uriah i'm going to go down the list tobias tyrese james and joel i'm going to give you four attributes of their game and we're going to rank them, see where we agree, see where we disagree. Okay, we're going to start with Tobias. I'm going to give you rebounding, on-ball defense, leadership, and shooting. One through four, how would you rank them? 
Well, I think Tobias's leadership is more so off the court. So I, I don't know. I when I came up with these, I wasn't I wasn't really sure if I was going to categorize them either on or off. But let's just say overall on and off leadership, the court. Uh, his rebounding, I think, is the weakest part of his game, at least in, in certain um, games the past postseason when you needed him to get a board. I don't think he really was able to do that. So I would say rebounding is fourth. His third best attribute out of the four would be his, I'd say his, hmm, I'd say his leadership. No, I can't. I'd say, because hmm, Joel's the leader. You know what? Just because he does so much in the community and he, he doesn't waste an opportunity in the summertime, his off time to visit schools and things like that. I'll, I'll put leadership number two for him. And his on-ball defense has been overlooked, I think, by a lot of the quote-unquote experts. I think, especially in the playoffs, Tobias was able to really disrupt his opponent in the postseason, really staying on his man and, and causing a bad shot. So that's number two. I'd say his shooting. He's a like a, a 50, 40, 88 guy. <laughs> like Tobias has been a solid shooter. At some points he gets streaky, but I think his shooting out of the four attributes is his strongest. What do you think? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think leadership is a tricky one to peg because I definitely think he has been – pretty crucial in keeping the team together at certain points and being kind of a guy who goes out of his way to, you know, make group chats and have guys come out to dinner and just simple stuff like that. Like keeping the team together and making sure that guys are talking to each other. That's something that we know Tobias has been a big part of, but by that same turn, it has felt, especially last season and in years past, that Philly hasn't really had a really solid leadership structure in the locker room just in general. Like, Joel is a pretty quiet, reserved guy. And Ben was a really quiet, reserved guy. And those were obviously the people we were looking towards in the past. So while I think Tobias is probably the quote-unquote leader in the locker room, you know, James might be kind of taking on some of that burden, but like, has he been the world's greatest leader? Has leadership been a strength for the team overall? Maybe not. So um, as far as importance to the team, I, I think I would put leadership fourth, not as like an insult or anything to Tobias, but just because mm -hmm. I don't know if he's really like someone who rallies the troops. It's because he didn't show up to the white party. That's what it is, Chris. I know where you're going with this. He wasn't at Michael Rubin's party. I know. Oh, I, I I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, you didn't um, know that? He was he was probably busy planning his wedding, so yeah, got to give him a pass on that. Um, but like I I think he's a better rebounder than you're giving him credit for. Like he mm. he's getting mm. seven rebounds a night. You know he's not not shabby. I'm mm. um, playing next to Joel and now James, who is also quite an effective and prolific rebounder himself. Um. I think for me, three, just because I'd like to see it on a, you know, a larger sample. He was a really great defender in the playoffs, but can we expect that for 82 games in the regular season? I'm not so sure. Um, so I'll put defense three, rebounding two, and shooting one. All right. That's fair. Okay. Um, let's go to Tyrese now. I'm going to give you his floater his speed, his three-point shot, and his attitude. Four to one, how would you rank him? I think a lot of people would say, well, attitude determines altitude, so that's got to be number one. Not necessarily. Here's why. Because I, he probably has one of the best attitudes out of anyone in the league, let alone the Sixers. But you can have players that have not the best attitude and still be effective because the other three that you gave floater speed, three point shot, that's like a skill set that requires attention to detail, uh, repetition, and obviously commitment attitude could precede that, but you can have a player with like a bad attitude. Like let's say a Dennis Rodman, 
or a meta world peace before he became meta world peace. Ron Artest. Those guys had sucky attitudes, but they still showed up and they played hard and they produced on the court. So that being said, <laughs> I still think his attitude is important. I'm going to make his floater number four. I think that's a part of his game because I guess when he got to the Sixers, Sam Cassell got on him like, hey, that's your bailout shot. Don't don't give up on creating contact at the rim. Finish at the rim more. You'll get and ones and, and you'll create another element to your threat as an offensive player. So I put his floater fourth. I put speed at number two. I think speed's important, but I also think that the ability to know when to stop and slow down is just as, as crucial. His attitude's number two, but I think his three-point shot is so important to this team. It's important for Joel. It's important for James Harden because no matter where Maxi is on the court, it's going to draw defenders, whether it's Harden's defender at the top of the key or whether it's Embiid's defender just kind of maybe cheating a little bit as he fronts him. I think that three-point shot from Maxi is number one. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. I, I think with most players, you know, I'd say you have to rank the skills over something that's kind of like implaceable and is hard to like pin down his attitude because there are so many different things that attitude to can or can't apply to like I will say with Tyrese it's he's pretty unique like like you said he probably has one of the best attitudes in the league however you want to define that like if it was work ethic specifically I'd maybe even bump it up a few spots higher on the list but he's a very positive guy and that helps but I, I think you're right about the floater I, I I'm comfortable putting that fourth in attitude third I might flip the other two around. I might put speed at number one just because I think that's really what makes him unique as a player. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's like it's not just that he's fast, but it's that he can kind of turn it off and off and use that speed selectively and purposefully. He can get to the rim as well as anyone in the league most nights. And that that's a really valuable tool, especially when you have a three-point shot that forces the defense to defend you. And when you're playing next to guys like Joel and James Harden, who are going to draw a lot of defenders, and that means when you catch the ball, the defense is rotating. They're out of position half the time. And that really makes your speed super-duper valuable because you're in such an advantageous position all the time. So I would put speed number one probably, but if he keeps shooting 43% from three, that in and of itself is going to have a whole lot of value. So can't really go wrong there. Um Let's move on now to James Harden. I'm going to give you dribbling, his step-back three-point shot, his passing, and his basketball IQ. It is still, I don't know, unbelievable to know that James Harden wears a Sixers jersey. If you look at some of his career highlights, mostly in Houston, the guy was unreal, the stuff that he could do and still can do. He may not be as explosive as he once was. And, you know, he maybe lost uh, 10% of a step or a quarter of a step. He's still one of the most amazing offensive players ever to put on an NBA jersey. That being said, I'll go with dribbling as fourth. We've seen him get a little sloppy in the playoffs in particular with, with the basketball. So I think dribbling is fourth on this skill ranking. I'll go. Mm. <laughs> I'll go. Wow. All right. The guy was second in the league in assists. So to make passing third would be, you know what? I'll put step back three point shot is third because as awesome as it looks, he misses more than he makes that shot at least last season from what we saw. It's a cool shot to see. I, I just, I would rewind it a million times because it's just so cool to watch him do that shot. Uh, passing would be number two because that's such an important part of the game. The Sixers never, Chris, the Sixers never had a a, a playmaker like him, ever. Not Maxi as fast as he is. Ben had great vision. Ben was a, a physical freak with great, like, basketball instincts but because he was scared to shoot that really screwed everything up. 
So I would say his passing is second and his IQ because his IQ, I think in court, <clears throat> excuse me. I think his IQ incorporates things like drawing fouls and knowing how to, you know, attack a team at certain points or, or to just get the guys in, in a, in a, in a situation where they have confidence that they can execute more positively than when Ben Simmons was here. So yeah, that's, that's my ranking. Yeah. I, I think that's a pretty fair ranking. The thing is with these four skills in particular, and this player in particular, they all kind of bleed into each other. Like they, they're all sort of interconnected in a way. Cause James like basketball IQ wise, he's one of the smartest players on the planet. Mm-hmm. And he manipulates the defense in such a unique and particular way. That's in part because of his dribbling. Like he's very purposeful and smart with how he uses his handles. That's part because he can leverage that step back shot and the defense has to play him for it. And that allows him to get by in certain situations. Obviously passing and basketball IQ go hand in hand when you're, he he just sees the floor and reads the defense and can, manipulate his guy in a way that no one else in the league really can so it's kind of hard to separate them out honestly i i too would probably say dribbling at four and the step back three at three or vice versa is is fair i I would put passing and basketball iq in the first two slots i honestly don't know how to separate them i like you said sixers just have not had a passer like james especially not since Embiid got here like we've been for years just complaining about the fact that no one on the Sixers can make an entry pass like the Sixers have been an actively bad passing team for years and like with Ben he passed the ball a lot and he was a very physical player and he got downhill and he drew in the defense and he could like thrive in transition and he passed a lot but he wasn't reading the game and breaking down defenses like James Harden it's just a whole different ball game they're different kinds of players so I, I I guess I would put basketball IQ number one just because that's kind of an umbrella that hangs over everything James does is that he's just ridiculously smart and analytical in how he approaches the game. So I, I'd put basketball IQ number one, but I, I, I think it's kind of hard to parse them in certain hey. ways because they just kind of bleed together. Hey, real quick, I was just scouring and looked at 2K ratings. And we won't do the other other players but just now that we're at Harden, I'm just comparing what they have compared to what we have. They have it categorized outside, inside, scoring, defending, athleticism, playmaking, rebounding. Playmaking, it's interesting. His ball handle, they have him on 2K, is 97 right now. His pass accuracy is only 82, but his pass IQ is 94, which, like like you're saying, everything bleeds into each other. I mean, so, but like, James makes some ridiculously accurate passes. I don't really know if I'd buy that. <laughs> you know, that is true. Like he he yeah. puts things on a rope, and they're generally where they're supposed to be. Yeah. Okay. They said his shot IQ is seventy five. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I mean, I, I even that I, I I think he generally takes pretty smart shots. Like I. Uh. It's either a three or it's at the rim. He's not checking a bunch of like ill-advised mid-range jumpers. Tobias style, you know what I mean? Like I don't. Know. I think he drove a lot. I've never seen a player ever, Chris, that drove the lane and got his shot blocked more than him. And I know it's volume. I know it's him. That's true. I. I mean, I think he got his shot blocked a lot at the end of the last season. But like, that's still probably the best shot he could take. You know, shots I agree. Like, that's still, like, his most efficient shot. Because he could draw a foul. He could draw a foul. He draws a lot of fouls that way. And, and like, obviously he had to adjust last season to not being as athletic as he's used to being. And we'll see if he gets any of that back. But, like, I think last season was something of a unique case for him just because he was kind of learning how to play with with new levels of athleticism, which I'm sure is very tough. Mm -hmm. But... Like, I think James is generally a very smart player in how he approaches the game as a whole. So I, especially on the offensive end. So I, I would, I wouldn't, I'd probably bump that rating up too if I were 2K. And I, you don't want to have him like at a 98 because you right. have to like balance out the game. 
let's talk about Joel to round this section out. I'm going to give you post-up moves, defense, foul baiting, and clutchness. One to four, or four to one. Now, I've been reading statistics from last season. Joel Embiid is one of the top clutch players in the entire league. I couldn't tell you the numbers, but I've seen so many different versions of that aspect of his game that he's dependable when you need him to hit a big shot, either to tie a game or to take the lead. That being said, I think that's that's going to be higher up, so I'm going to save that. I'll say his because he he's the leader in foul shots, right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I think over the past two seasons, he's understood he has to preserve his energy for late games. So I think his defense is, has lacked a little bit. He still protects the rim better than almost anybody anybody in the league other than your guy, Gobert. I'll give Gobert that. So I'll put defense at four. His foul baiting, I'll put it three. Just because in the playoffs it didn't work. He wasn't getting shots in those games that that he would normally get in the regular season from the foul line because the refs, sometimes they let the players play or maybe Embiid just wasn't as effective against certain opponents. That's three. I'll do, I guess, oh, man. I'll go, I guess I'll do post-up moves second. He has a variety of things that he can do around the rim as well as away from the rim shooting in his opponent's faces, spot-up shooting, uh, dribble pull-up. He has so many post-it moves. But because he was so clutch, whether it's the Indiana game or a Charlotte game from two seasons ago, Atlanta game, there was a game where he was clutch, and a Boston game last season where he was like shooting a, a fadeaway in the final moments of, of the fourth quarter, and the Toronto game. Who makes that shot? That, that was like exercising your demons to the 10th degree in the building that he, he made that shot in against the Raptors. So I'll, I'll go with clutchness as number one. Interesting. I honestly might have the exact opposite. Really? I I mean, so it's like kind of a phrasing thing. Like foul baiting is a, are we like just talking about his ability to draw fouls in general? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a because I mean that's kind of what makes him the best scorer in the NBA is the fact that he goes to the free throw line twenty times a night. You know. All right, so that's your number one. Like his most efficient shot is a free throw. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, but if, I, I if think that's not working, though. be number one. Yeah. But I I mean the only other thing I would consider putting there is the fact that he's like a one man defensive system. You know what I mean? He's one of the two three best rim protectors in the NBA when he's locked in. Right. He pretty much guarantees you a top 10 at least top half of the league defense and you need that to win a championship and like there's so much that goes into his offense that makes him special obviously he's great in the post and he has some special special moves but he's equally great at facing up he can hit the three he can get to the line in a variety of ways like there there are other things that make his offense deadly that don't necessarily fall into the category of like his post moves which are great, but like that's only part of the the equation with him offensively. And, and clutchness is it's like again sort of hard to define. Like you said, the numbers point to him being one of the best clutch performers in the NBA, and I don't doubt it. And the Toronto shot was awesome, but like I don't know if I could put clutchness over defense and foul drawing specifically because those are like two cornerstone that, that's part of what makes him one of the best players in the on the planet mm-hmm. so i put those two one and two in whichever order i i, I it's hard to pick okay um and i probably put post-up moves and clutchness you know in the three four slots again i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure how i'd parse them uh, i i mean i guess i'll just to have a concrete rating I'll put defense one, foul drawing two, post moves three, and clutchness four. 
not that all four aren't really important special parts of his game. Mm-hmm. We want to make that clear. Like he's a special player. He's really good in all four respects. But Absolutely. I, I mean, his ability to draw fouls is what separates him from the league's best scores. Like he's not more efficient from the field than Giannis or Jokic or Durant or those guys. He he's just not. Mm-hmm. Those guys are better at scoring from the field, but Joel gets to the foul line more because mm-hmm. you just can't guard him without fouling him. That's what yeah. separates him from the other great scorers in the NBA. So I, I think that's pretty high up there for me. All right. Well, I guess you make good points. We'll just have to agree to disagree. And, and we'll definitely, I will talk, I guess we'll talk to Lucas off air about this because I'll be interested to see what he thinks. So the final topic for the podcast tonight, Chris, has to do with Utah. Yes, if you're a Sixers fan, you just can't wait to talk about Utah. And, well, there's a reason why we're going to talk about it. Multiple reports reveal that Danny Ainge is shopping Donovan Mitchell. Multiple-time All-Star, dynamic player, spite of Mitchell. The guy can jump through the rim. He had a 50-piece in the bubble against Jamal Murray in the Nuggets, which was a classic game. Look, Donovan Mitchell is well worth the money to see in person. Now, having traded Gobert, and unfortunately, Utah fans are going to be waving goodbye to Spider Mitchell because they're going to shop him possibly to New York or maybe Miami. Chris, the Sixers kind of were trading all their good players at one point. I think even before you started covering the Sixers, can we label what Danny Ainge and the Utah Jazz are doing as tanking? Yeah, I mean, if they trade Mitchell, it'll definitely be for younger players, and it will be with the goal of rebuilding. So I, I, I think you and I have different responses to the word tanking. I think the word tanking makes us feel different ways. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you trade your two best players for draft picks, you're tanking. That's that's what you're doing. Like they've already traded, in my opinion, their best or at least their most important player in Gobert for mm-hmm. again, like rotation level borderline starters and draft picks. They didn't get they got players who can play for a contender, but no one who's gonna be a top three, four, five player on a contender. And if you trade Donovan Mitchell to New York, you're not gonna get a player like that either. I mean, you're looking at, like, Evan Fournier and then young guys and draft picks. So, yeah, I I, I think we are trending in the direction of Utah tanking. If they trade Mitchell, they're probably going to look to get rid of Bogdanovich and Mike Conley because there's really no point in keeping them around at that point. Like, Utah could be making some moves here. So, definitely feels like that's where we're heading. They're definitely tanking. And... Danny Ainge is, is brilliant at what he does. He's had a lot of success in a front office. Clearly, he's a champion as part of that Celtics team. He's, I think, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong. You may not even know this. He's the only player to ever go to the finals and back-to-back seasons with different teams. I could be wrong. Uh, but, yeah, he, he played with... Uh, Phoenix in 93 and then the following season uh, in Portland no wait was he did Portland go to the championship that year oh no I think he was in Portland in 92 and then in 93 he went to Phoenix if I'm not mistaken so Ainge is a champion he knows basketball on the court and off the court and he knows what he's doing with the Rudy Gobert trade got some really great picks from Minnesota and if he's able to land some capital from New York or uh, not Chicago, Miami, in exchange for Donovan Mitchell, he will be creating a pathway for Utah to be set up for the next four to five years because he did it in Boston when he traded away Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce to Brooklyn and got all those picks. And what was the fruit of that? It was Jalen Brown, and Jason Tatum. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that's tanking. Yeah, I mean, and look, it's there's slightly different circumstances. Like, Donovan Mitchell is 25 years old. He's at the 
very, very front end of his prime. Paul Pierce and Kevin Durant, or Garnett, pardon me, were mid-30s. Like, they were at the end of their primes. And by the time they got to Brooklyn, they were way past it. Um, but also, like, it's pretty clear, like, reading the tea leaves, that Donovan just doesn't want to be there. Like, that's part of the equation. Mm-hmm. It's not even necessarily a matter of whether or not he's good enough to build a team around. It's that he probably doesn't want to be in Utah. So that's something you have to take into consideration. He didn't clearly the Gobert partnership was not in a great place. It's clear that they didn't really want to rebuild the team around Gobert, obviously. And like you probably can't build it around Mitchell because he doesn't want to be there. Yeah. I mean, so I think that factors into it. Um Yeah, and free agents, Chris, don't really have Utah on their list. They're they're just straight up not going to go to Utah because it's Utah. Nothing against Utah. I'm sure Salt Lake City is a beautiful town. Mm -hmm. But it's not a free agent hotspot. It's just the nature of of the game. And that's to your your point about Mitchell thinking, oh, they'll just build around me. Well, how are they going to do that if nobody wants to come to Salt Lake City? But at the end of the day, Ainge knows that for several years, their team is not going to be good. They're going to lose a lot of games, but they'll have young, blossoming talent, similar to what, <clears throat> similar to what maybe uh, OKC is doing right now. By the way, on a you know side note, uh, Chet, uh, Chet, uh, what's his last name? Holmgren. Holmgren, yeah. Yeah. Uh, real quick thoughts on Chet going down in the Pan Am game. Uh, yeah, I mean it sucks. It's unfortunate. I was really looking forward to Chet playing this year as yeah. a rather vocal proponent of him. But yeah, me too. Um, now he can win Rookie of the Year and Paolo can win Rookie <laughs> of the Year. So why choose when you can yeah. have both? That's a good um, point. <laughs> All right, let's get back. Uh, let's see. All right, so talking about tanking, Utah's doing it. Even their own fans probably see this coming. That being said, if Utah is actually tanking, will the Jazz get the same media or league treatment that the Sixers did with Sam Hinkie? Probably not, because I think Philly was a bit extreme in how they went about it, and also because <laughs> Philly's just a bigger market and a more mm-hmm. important market in the like national media landscape than Utah. And also, I think we're more used to it now than we were when Sam Hinkie did it. I think it's just a more common way that teams go about things. OKC, Orlando, all these teams have been tanking. They've been accruing young talent, accruing high picks. Like that's been the MO Houston after the James trade. Like it's just a pretty common way to go about things at this point. And you know, I, I think generally it's a pretty smart way to go about things because the quickest way, especially in a small market, to bring yourself out of purgatory is to get a top top level talent in the draft and the best way you're going to do that is if you're picking first second third and not 10th or 14th you know i think there are great examples of teams who refuse to tank washington sacramento etc who have suffered for that because they're just stuck in this weird middle ground where there's not really a path forward and they just refuse to to you know tear it all down and start from the beginning so i think utah if Donovan doesn't want to be there. The Gobert partnership would run its course. I, I think they're probably making the right choice to kind of strip it down, to reset, and to accrue as many assets as possible and try to build for the next five, you know, try to build for five years from now when this current crop of contenders is phasing out and when maybe you can get a top pick or two. Like just looking ahead to next draft, Victor, that seven footer from France, he's going to be an awesome player he's yeah considered one of the best prospects in a while so that's a guy that's worth tanking for there are players at the top of the draft each year who can really change a franchise you know so <laughs> yeah all these teams have been tanking orlando okc they're starting to head in the right direction these are teams with really interesting and compelling groups of young players like if you do it right and you have a plan it's generally the right, right way to do it. Like, you can't tank forever. You have to start building at some point. So you make but, a good point. I, I have to jump in here. You said smaller markets 
they're tanking. They don't get as much as attention. Sixers are a top five market. I would I would put that out there. So is the reason why the Sixers is wouldn't get as as much flack, or the Sixers will get more flack than Utah or Orlando or whoever? Is it because the market differential, or is it? Is it the? Is I think it, it's that. No, wait. Is it the extremity? Like you said, no, the extreme. I, I think that, it's both. Okay. Like Philly was extremely like they were running right. out G League players for yeah. a good stretch there, and also yeah. part of it is that the guy who kind of kickstarted their ascent didn't play for two years, so it kind of dragged on longer than maybe it would have if Embiid had played right away. Mm-hmm. Like that's part of it too. And who knows if Embiid would have been the same player if he played straight away or how it would have gone. But, like, part of it is that the guy they got with one of those top, top picks didn't play right away. And then Ben Simmons also didn't play right away. He needed a year to recover from a foot injury. So, guys, it took them a minute to get to the place where... Maybe they could have played Simmons a little earlier, though. Maybe, but, like, you know... At a certain point, it's smart to be patient with that kind of thing, right? So, <laughs> yeah. like, like the extremity in the market size of both parts of it, and the fact that Embiid was hurt for two years before he ever played, like that's part of it too. It's just different for every team and every franchise. But I, I do think the fact that Philly was doing it to such an extreme level where they were winning 10 games in a year, and the fact that they're Philly, they're a top five market, like you said. I think those are really the big factors there. Well, you also have to look at the previous, uh, I guess, two or three seasons before that decision is made to not win as many games with mm-hmm. the roster that you have. The distinction between Utah and the, and the Sixers is Utah had multiple all-stars. Utah had multiple mm-hmm. playoff runs and higher expectations because they had the talent – to do so, to to go into the yeah. playoffs, where the Sixers, before they traded their best player and all-star, Drew Holiday, they didn't have high expectations. They had a revolving door of coaches, Tony DeLeo, D- uh, Doug Collins, and whoever else in between. So once ownership said, let's just hire someone, we're going to blow it up, we're going to do yeah. what OKC did, we're going to play the numbers. We're bound to strike the lottery and get a Durant, uh, Russell and uh, Westbrook and, and, hey. Dur- and uh, Harden. We got to get in Harden anyway. But but yeah, I think that's the distinction between Utah and, and look, Philly. I, I mean, obviously Philly messed up a lot of things along the way after they made that decision. And a lot of things went wrong. But they did land Joel Embiid. And like they could have kept it going with True Holiday. And they could have been the Wizards. But like... <laughs> Sometimes you just have to make that decision because they could have been the Wizards, or they or they could have could be been signing Bradley Beal to a five year extension and like going for that eighth seat every season. But at, at a certain point, or they could have been they, they could have been they could have been Golden State, or they could have been Milwaukee. Chris, that's my that will always be my argument because Giannis was picked at fifteen sixteen. Steph Curry was like nine, a number nine pick. He was the number seven pick, but like. All right. Well, Billy wasn't well, Clay Thompson, seven pick, which Clay Thompson and Draymond Green. My argument rests there. There was, there was no, like you, you just, you have to draft the right people. It's, it's a long shot, but it's not impossible. You're absolutely right. But it's, it's also like a game of percentages. Like, like your best odds of drafting a game changing talent are in the top five or in the Mm -hmm. top 10. Like, you could draft Giannis at 14. You could draft Jokic at 42, but that's like a once in a blue moon thing. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Where'd he come from? Where'd he come from? Exactly. So like, <laughs> you're right. There are examples of teams drafting superstar talents outside the top 10. It does happen. You can get lucky in that sense. But like like with Sam Hinkie, it was just getting as many bites at the apple as possible and when you don't have a very clear direction as a team sometimes getting as many bites at the apple as possible for a couple years is is a smart way to go about things and once you get someone like Embiid once you get Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Chet Holmgren and Josh Giddey you can start kind of building back up and making moves to start contending but you got to get those players first 
So it it really just it it's a franchise by franchise thing. It depends on your market. It depends on how many assets you have, mm-hmm. what kind of players you have, how happy your star players are on your team with respect to Donovan Mitchell. But I think Utah's probably making the right choice here to kind of tear it down and build back up. And like Philly, you don't have Joel if you don't do what they did. So it's hard for me to say Philly did the wrong thing because they have Joel Embiid now. And they had enough assets to squander 70% of them and still have Ben Simmons, who you turned into James Harden, and still trade for Tobias. And they hit on Tyrese at 21, which, like you said, if you draft the right Ah. people, you can hit outside the lottery. But Tyrese... Is not going to be the best player on a championship team, probably. Uh, that is a now, is Zion time. Williamson going to be the best player on a championship team? Quite possibly. He could. Like, there yeah, are he could stay healthy. levels to it. He so, put down the sweet potato pie. So, yeah, but like, like, there are different levels of prospect and potential. So, those are all things you have to consider. Oh, cool, man. I, I like that. I like what you said, but I think it's time to head on up. All right. To all our listeners, as always, thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of the Sixer Sense podcast. Please like, subscribe, and follow along if you can. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or Audible, or you can listen at our website, thesixersense.com, and read our work as well. We will keep you posted on all things Sixers. We are on Twitter and Facebook at Sixer Sense as well. So until next week, everyone, peace out. Go Sixers, and we will talk to you soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.